7.36 nearly. Is Beijing successfully weaving a new Silk Road? China hosted a One Belt, One Road summit earlier this week with 29 heads of states there out of 60 countries taking part. Just to give you a sense of the scale of the project, the spending is 12 times the size of the US Marshall Plan, which obviously helped rebuild Western Europe after World War II, even when adjusted for inflation, according to a Fortune article. Let's bring in Scott Sendrowski, writer for Fortune, based in Beijing. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. For those of us unfamiliar with this whole project, can you start by telling us about what this new Silk Road is all about? Yeah, this is basically a huge spending package from China that really has two tracks. The Chinese call it Belt and Road. So the Belt is a network of railroads, oil pipelines, and these other projects that basically runs northwest from China through Kazakhstan, Russia, goes through Central Asia, and then basically takes a turn and heads up into Eastern Europe and hits Belarus and Poland. Um, the road, actually somewhat confusingly, is actually a, a maritime route of ports that tracks through Southeast Asia, touches on Africa, and then goes up into Europe. So uh, China is expected to spend $100 billion annually over the next decade on this Belt and Road project. Uh, what's in it for them to be pouring all that money overseas? Is it particularly beneficial economically? I was talking to a longtime China observer the other day, and he described this as China's foreign policy. So this is basically bonding China with countries that may otherwise continue to remain dependent on the U.S., going back to the Marshall Plan that you described earlier. Um, but for China, this has the added bonus of giving some markets to its horde of state-owned companies that just really aren't building as much as they used to in China. So the, the projections are that there's going to be $100 billion in spending on Belt and Road projects annually, and about half of that will be for raw materials like concrete and steel. So that's essentially domestic stimulus for Chinese companies. And in the top Chinese officials really haven't been shy about saying that Belt and Road projects can soak up some of the excess steel and iron capacity from Chinese companies that are hurt by the waning demand from their own country's building frenzy. And then of that total, another 30% will go towards actually building these projects and the engineering that goes into them. So those will be led by Chinese engineering procurement construction contractors, which have a lock on winning the business because, again, who's, who's offering the business? You know, China, Chinese banks. And even though Chinese goal is to eventually attract private investors in the projects, it's really going to start with the Chinese companies themselves. It, I mean, it's almost like building an empire tied with silk, uh, if we want to continue the analogy there. I mean, are these other countries raising concerns at all that they'll, they'll be indebted to China in some way and, or that they'll be tied too strongly to them? Oh, sure. I mean, you can, you can read stories about, especially in Central Asia and Southeast Asia, where China's rising influence has uh, really put countries on guard, that they're unsure about how to take this. I mean, there are huge amounts of money flying into places like Laos, 
that just has never absorbed that kind of investment. And they're really concerned whether a $6 billion railroad that China is proposing for them um, really makes sense for the long term. So it's a, this is very early on in the project, and China is trying to work out some of these early concerns. But it, it also falls in line with Chinese President Xi Jinping stressing the importance of rejecting protectionism as a pushback against what we're seeing from the United States. That, that's got to be quite a, a strong sentiment there. Yeah, look, this um, is a very real way to provide some stimulus to Chinese companies. But China is also looking to fill a vacuum that uh, has been created from the U.S. and um, its own politics that are pulling it back, and uh, even what's happening in Europe. So she, President Xi, first defended globalization at the World Economic Forum in January, and he's continued to do it here. But I think it's equally important to note that China's own market isn't exactly a bastion of free trade. So when when she is stressing uh, the rejection of protectionism in One Belt, One Road projects, uh, the reaction from U.S. officials and from European officials is they're worried about China using protectionism itself in keeping this massive building project and these massive investments to its own companies. Yeah, now, over this two-day summit forum, Delegations from more than 100 countries, over 1,000 officials, uh, very prominently the likes of Russian President Vladimir Putin, Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan, but an absence of leaders from the European Union. How significant is that? I think it was probably a little disappointing for China. Uh, there were 29 heads of state, but really only 20 of those came from one belt, one road countries. And that means about 44 leaders were absent. So there's some concern, I think, on, on China's part that they're not getting the reaction that they think they deserve. And uh, there's concern from a lot of these European countries, which have been tied diplomatically with the U.S. for decades, about China's rising influence. Um, I spoke with, with one private Chinese builder recently, and he told me that he was looking at a project that was tied with One Belt, One Road in Albania, but that the government couldn't offer him a deal because it was put off by U.S. pressure. And um, as far as the issue of Putin being there is concerned, obviously there was a lot of talk around him, generally speaking, even courted extra attention by playing the piano. <laughs> is there anything particularly significant going on between Russia and China at this moment? Any different direction? <laughs> yeah, it was a nice ditty he played on the piano, just seemingly uh, impromptu. Um, this is really, there is a, a large natural gas pipeline that China and Russia have agreed upon, and it's trying to be carved into one belt, one road. But Russia has basically offered to be a large standing ally partner on this for China. And I think the way that China is using that 
is creating a, a block of influence and creating conversations with uh, these countries that it's targeting that it's not this One Belt, One Road project is not China versus world criticism. It's China, Russia, and the growing number of allies that don't want to be left out in the cold mm. uh, that are looking to create really new infrastructure in places that, that probably need it over the coming decades. But, of course, on the first day of this summit, North Korea fired a, a missile, um, and that drew a huge amount of attention here in South Korea, distracted us, no doubt did the same in the United States, but did it also more broadly overshadow this event to some extent? I'd say to a limited extent. As its only ally, you know, China leaders really could have gone without it. But, look, I mean, North Korea has been derailing news for the last couple of months, and after that test, she spoke on the same day and called this his project of the century. And so if he showed any frustration with North Korea trying to overshadow his uh, coming out party for One Belt, One Road, he at least didn't betray it. You've written uh, that China's investment in nearly... 60 countries in the Belt and Road program fell by 2% last year. How do you forecast uh, the future of the program? Well, that was based upon commerce data that China releases, that it's down. And I've also heard that reports, reports of banks in China dragging their feet on projects. These are really large spending projects that have 30-year lifespans. And some of them don't make a whole lot of economic sense. And so there's a natural tendency, even among Chinese banks, state-owned Chinese banks, to wait it out and see if this is really moving forward in the direction that she and others speak of. But I think in the next few years, the odds are pretty good that investment is going to rise quickly and we'll probably see a spending figure that's around $100 billion annually. Um, um, this is what she has prioritized. He calls it the project of the century. And Chinese banks and companies are widely expected to fall in line. And finally, as an aside, we, we've been talking this morning about how there is this apparent thaw in relations with China. It, it seems to have coincided with the rise of Moon Jae-in to the presidency here in South Korea. Can we infer anything about future Seoul-Beijing relations based on the current mood and any encounters at the summit? Well, last minute, Seoul decided to send a representative from the Democratic Party to the forum. And the U.S. also sent representatives uh, when it was previously planning to skip the conference. So really no one wants to be left out of this $1 trillion U.S. spending project. And so maybe this is one step in a, in a long road towards better relations between Seoul and Beijing. Um, but it's probably only that, just a step. Yeah, well, every little bit seems to help. And so much of it does seem to be driven by mood. 
Uh, and, and as soon as that mood starts to feel more positive, we're, we're already talking about a thaw uh, in uh, the apparent sanctions that have been pl- put in place. Scott Sandrowski, writer for Fortune, based in Beijing, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Of course, I'm referring there in terms of sanctions to China's disapproval of Thaad missile defense. If that's not already clear to you, as we've talked about it at length uh, over the last few months, if you want to text your thoughts on the relationship with China or any other issues related to the One Belt, One Road Summit, uh, and indeed any of our topics this morning, pound of sharp, 1013 for 51 per message.